0: All right. So let's go ahead and pray and get started, shall we? Father God, we just thank you that you rule and reign. We thank you that we not only know that, but that, Lord, it is a delight for us to know that. Apart from Christ, all we were were hostile to your name and glory. We resisted every truth that you have poured in our conscience, and we drank down iniquity like it was water. Because of your great mercy, and your love displayed through the works of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are no longer enemies, but we are friends. Even more so, we have become sons and daughters. Father, just prepare our minds and our hearts today as we continue to look at the biblical position on marriage. Help those who are married, Lord, to put off those things that they see do not honor you and put on those things that do honor you, Lord. And for those who are not married yet and have a desire, Prepare them, Lord, that they would marry well, that would marry with wisdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Today, the topic, if you see the notes, is marriage and the gospel. What I love about our faith is that the gospel is always the center of everything that we do. So it's never a weird thing to... Think about the gospel in any aspect of life that God calls you to steward. One thing I would say is we just gotta be careful because sometimes we treat the gospel as secondary. So for example, I wanna work, let me see how the gospel can help me work. That's kind of the wrong idea. The answer is, or the right way to think about it, I think is the gospel is everything in my life. It is the foundation of everything I do. How can I build on that in the workplace? Or in my relationships and so although it's titled marriage and the gospel I just want us to remember the gospel is the filter or the lens or the foundation in which we build everything else including marriage remember marriage as sweet as it is it is a shadow a shadow of a greater marriage and that marriage is between Christ and his bride and so today I get the great blessing to remind us of that so if we're going to talk about the gospel let's go back through the gospel Uh, So here's a particular way in which you can remember it. We have four areas to remember when sharing the gospel. The first one is always, who is God, right? Not only do we need to tell people and we need to tell ourselves that he's the creator, but God has attributes. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's righteous and holy. And these things sound good on paper for a normal man until you realize He's not just this good person. He is also a king who has authority over everybody. The biggest danger or the the bad news of the Bible is that God is good because you and I are not. When we look at man, we learn of our understanding that man was made in the image of God. That because man is created, he is to serve his creator. And we know the story of Adam and Eve. And we see that the first man and woman Rebelled, and because of their rebellion, all man is now fallen in the sins of Adam. We are born, as they, as we say, spiritually dead, disconnected from the person who made us, the Lord, and for the reasons that he made us. And although we still bear his image in part, we often many times use that image to shame his name and to dishonor his name and to try to lift our glory above him. The consequences of sinning against a holy God is, a, is condemnation. It's not for a couple years, hundred, a thousand. When you sin against an infinite, worthy God, you deserve an infinite condemnation. It's not overkill. It's right and just. If it was possible to only sin once, that would be enough. Because it's not so much what you do, it's whom you've done it against. When you sin against a holy God... We're not messing with just a, um, an earthly leader, a finite leader. This is the infinite one. But the good news is that God sends his son, Jesus. Jesus does what the first Adam could never do. He keeps God's law, thought, word, and deed. And one of the most the things I've been thinking about recently is it's one thing to it, well, let me put it this way. I think oftentimes we think obedience is just do the thing. But the more and more we read scripture, realize that God doesn't only concern himself that we do the thing, but that we do it with the right heart. If David was a man after God's own heart, remember, he was only in that way as a shadow. Christ is truly the one after God's own heart. And so he delighted every second to keep the word of God. How many times do we hear in scripture, I've not come to do my will, but the Father's will. You think I need food? I have food you know not of to do the will of the Father. So he attains righteousness for the people that he would represent. Perfect righteousness. That's crazy to think about, right? We will be found pleasing to the Lord. That's insane to think about, but it's because of Christ. A righteousness that's not our own. And then we know that crimes cannot be swept under the rug... Crimes must be paid for, so don't get it twisted. Jesus didn't just somehow make a deal with God to just like forget about it, put it in a corner. It had to be paid for, and that's what we see happen on the cross. It wasn't the nails. It wasn't the cross in and of itself. It was that in that moment, there was something happening in the spiritual court of law, and the wrath of God was poured out on Christ for all his people. I always quote this when I talk about the gospel because it's one of my favorite lines but it, it's a line in a song and it says forever will I tell Christ suffered more in three hours than any sinner ever will in hell and the reason is because he's bearing hell for a multitude and he bore it all his deity didn't somehow make it easier his deity held up his humanity so that he would take every last drop and then he died but he didn't stay dead he rose. The check cleared. It was the amen of the Father. The, the work of the Son was accepted. That's amazing. You know, I think sometimes, especially in, the, in, in our country, we live a very fast-paced life. It's going to be very easy to kind of just do the thing to move to the next thing, right? And I'm just kind of going slow right now because I just want you to realize this is a message that I believe everyone here knows and finds precious. But when was the last time you slowed down and thought about it? I think oftentimes because we just kind of, oh, I know that part, let me move to this thing, let me move to what's in front of me, you find yourself erring a lot. And you ask, why, why can't I seem to do things right? It's because you've forgotten what the foundation is. You may know the words, but you've forgotten the weightiness of it. Uh, one of the biggest uh, battles I think we have as as Christians on this side of heaven is that we are still forgetful people. Um, we get used to things, and things that we should find as precious many days we see as common and specifically the things of the Lord who he is and what he has done for us so um, from there we're going to talk about well how does keeping the good news of Jesus Christ at the core of our marriage how will that help us to honor God in the day ins and day outs of marriage in particular we're going to talk about when there's sin between the husband and and the wife so we're going to go to Ephesians 2 so if you could please turn to Ephesians 2 okay and we're going to read um, chapter 2 uh, starting in verse 1 we'll just go ahead and read 1 through 10 and I'll try to exegete it a little bit and we'll see uh, application so Ephesians 2 1 through 10 in kindness towards us in christ jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works which god prepared beforehand that we should walk in them so the way i would summarize kind of the theme of this part that God lavishes his grace on us by saving sinners through his own initiative. I'm going to break it into two sections, verses 1 through 3, and then 4 through 10. Paul starts with the reality that we are dead in our transgressions and sins apart from Christ. What does this mean? If you're dead, you can't give yourself life. (laughs) To get life, you must have it from one who is outside of you. You cannot as we tend to say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Our death is not caused by an accident or something that we can somehow excuse. Well, it wasn't my fault. It's because of our transgressions, our violations of God's moral law. And all this is understood as sin. These things we have chosen to do, and they are a great offense to God. Paul further explains our sin in this way. They corrupt us. They make us dead. The world, our sinful flesh and the devil, the anti-trinity, if you will. This was not by accident, or it's not a one-time problem, but sin is what characterized our lives. It is a fundamental part of the fallen man. Think about it this way. It's not that children are somehow born neutral or even inherently good. It's like having... Um, uh, um, a defect in your in your very DNA. You're we all born with it. It's nature inherited. This is who we were before we became Christians. This is what our life was ruled by: sin and death. But four through ten, it always starts the conjunction but. He paints this dark, bleak picture, but then there's this wonderful but. It signifies a turn, a contrast. Something's about to be changing. God chooses to show mercy on us as sinners, those who were dead and could not save themselves. His mercy flows from his love. It's not based on anything meritorious in those whom he chose to save. There is nothing we did to earn our salvation. There's no human works that we accomplished. There's no some sort of hidden potential that God's like, you're worth saving because you're going to multiply. My fruit later, and I'll get back more on my investment. It's not how this works. So, there's no boasting in our salvation. Instead, we recognize through these verses that salvation is a gift. Paul repeats it twice when he says, It is by grace you have been saved. Grace, as we know, is unmerited favor from God for those who have sinned against Him. It's not just the disposition of God, but it's also the power that transforms them or us and secures our salvation. Now, what's the response to this wonderful news? I think the answer, of course, must be that it's faith, a trust in Christ as our personal Savior. Verses 4 through 10 describe we are now believers, those who have been saved by God's marvelous grace so let's continue to draw out a little bit of these new that with the new creation comes new affections and with new affections come new actions so let's talk about those so there it says but god made us alive the principle i think we can draw here is sanctification the being made into the image of god's likeness comes from justification okay so i think in our worldly experience how do you become rich? You work hard and then you become rich, right? So we would say the work comes first, the riches are the result. I think oftentimes we try to overlay that kind of concept in Christianity and you'll hear things. You want to know how you get right with God? You do the right things. But that's not how this works. You are declared righteous through God, by God through Christ, okay? You're right because of Jesus. In one sense, yes, you're right. Works do precede our justification. But it's not our works. It is the works of another. It's Jesus' works that make us right. It is because we are new in Christ that we will now display the fruit of sanctification. I think that's very important that we remember that. Fruit, root. What comes first? If you get these wrong, you're going to have a hard time living this life well. How many times have you been tempted, you fall into sin, and the answer is, man, you must not be Christian. If you're theologically clear on that day, what should your response be? Yes, I am a sinner, but I'm not right because of me. I'm right because of Christ, right? Now, let's here's the other twist of that, right? What's the other twist? The other twist is, well, hey, if you're right because of Christ, then why do anything? Just do what you want. And the answer is, Jesus is not a ticket to get out of jail for me. Jesus is precious to me. He's not just my Savior, he's my Lord. Don't you dare bring that accusation to me. I will never fall for that. I'm not going to stay in that because he's not something to be used. He's a person to be served and worshiped. How can I continue to live in the things in which he died for? Okay, so those are the the barriers to stop yourself from falling in out of the way that temptation may take you. The contrast between our past sinful states as unbelievers and our present salvation in Christ as believers is justification. We start out here in Ephesians pointing out that we are no longer what we once were. We are no longer human. No, that's not the case. It's that we're no longer a slave to sin. Sin is no longer that main word that characterizes fallen humanity. We are no longer in that category, which means it no longer needs to categorize your marriage. It does not mean that marriages are going to be perfect by no means. No marriages, well, there's one marriage, Christ and the bride, right? Sin is no longer the dominating force, Graces salvation makes a difference for our marriages because god has transformed us to have a healthy marriage i would say is a fruit that those involved in it have been changed right how encouraging is that right i mean sometimes we can be in a marriage for a long time maybe there are certain habits that have gone on for years maybe it started with ignorance maybe it's not maybe it's willful it seems impossible okay but let's look at the bigger picture Apart from Christ, you were going to hell. But Christ came in, stepped in. He didn't just give you like, here's ten, 10 tools that you can use, but you're still on your own. He saved you completely, and that means if there's hope to take an enemy and make him a friend, then there's hope to turn any marriage to glorify the Lord. The power isn't you. <laughs> the power isn't how well you work together. The power is found in remembering that Christ is your foundation. This should give us hope if there's sin in your marriage because change is possible because the Spirit dwells in believers. Transformed hearts and the Spirit brings conviction, repentance, and greater faith. These are the things that God uses to save and to grow and to redeem our marriages. Because God has saved you, there is always hope for your marriage reading, quoting in Ephesians, but God, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. This comes out of his merciful love. God saves sinners by his grace. While we can't save our spouses like God does, because only Jesus saves, we are image bearers who throughout the Bible are called to be or imitate the Lord. When we see how God treats us in our salvation, it should set a pattern for our marriages. In the face of our spouse's sin, we want to be like God. We want to be loving and gracious towards our spouse, especially in their sin. Again, reminding us, verse 4, there's the big turn. And this big turn hinges on God's merciful love towards us. What's remarkable is that God does not do this for people who deserve to be loved, rather, He shows His merciful love to sinners while we were still enemies. By nature we hated Him. By nature, it was right. we, he, we were His enemies and um, I don't know what I'm saying there. I'm not. Front. <laughs> point is we were sinners, we were enemies. Now think about this how we apply this to marriage. How do you respond to your spouse's sin? Do you typically respond to your spouse's sin with sin? Because if God has saved you, you have the supernatural ability to respond differently. You can choose in the Spirit to respond with love in the face of your spouse's sin, with loving mercy. I know that marriage, even as Christians, can be characterized by Christians' response to sin to one another. I just want to say that if the gospel is true, it really is possible to not return evil for evil. It's not just a concept, a metaphorical concept, a poetic idea. You actually can do that. It's not by your own strength. What I've noticed is whenever you try to move by your strength, it may seem on the surface like it works. But it never sticks, if that makes sense. Uh, any work trying to be done in your own ability... Is something that God, remember, God is zealous and jealous for his glory, for your holiness. And if you start creating a pattern that you are doing things by your own power, God will not bring success. That's not real success. It may look so on the surface. Remember, God is one who looks at the heart of men. If you do not trust Christ to help you in any and all circumstances, especially responding to evil, it doesn't honor the Lord, and it's not real love. Grace is God's undeserved favor to sinners. It is something we do not deserve. Again, if we are to live like God, then we want grace to characterize our marriages. We want it to be the overall tone of our marriages. Our Christian marriages should not be two sinners captivated by sin. Our Christian marriages should be two sinners captivated by grace. A gracious God saved us and transformed us. We sinners transformed by grace... Respond to one another with grace. Grace is the pattern that we ought to exemplify in all relationships, but especially marriage. We want to respond to our spouse's sin with grace. So the question to kind of ask yourself if you're married, what is the tone of your marriage? Is it anger, hatred, conflict, bitterness, selfishness? Or is it love and grace fueled by the great love and grace you have received from Jesus Christ. Through faith. The battle in marriage is often for faith or unbelief. As we said earlier, the gospel commands a response from us. Either you will have faith or you will unbelieve. Faith is a confident trust in Christ and a reliance on him. In our marriages, we are often tempted to trust ourselves, our sinful flesh, trust the world, and trust the lies that are in our mind and our hearts, rather than put our trust in Christ and his commands. Reliance on Christ would mean trusting in him and his word as absolutely true, rather than trusting in anyone else, any other idea, but more importantly, not trusting what you feel. More and more, I realize, and the Bible tells us this, but sometimes you don't pick it up <laughs> when you read it. Um, your biggest enemy is your flesh. Do you understand that? Is the devil an enemy? Yes. He should be feared, and you should be careful. You need the Lord for that. But trust me, the flesh is much more tangible in our everyday life than the devil. Okay? So, I want to be real quick. Don't disregard the devil, but also don't overemphasize him. Because your flesh is enough. Think about it. What enemy knows you better than your flesh? I was just talking to Julian the other day. It's so interesting. God gives you a strength, and your flesh will many times turn your strength to your weakness. Right? Isn't that interesting? Something that you can see yourself doing for the glory of God, if not understood or seen rightly, is going to be used to dishonor the Lord. Let's give an example. If your name is Bob or Jenny, forgive me, this isn't about you. These are just the names that we came up with. (laughs) Bob and Jenny are married and are struggling with each other because they don't agree on how to spend their money. They've gotten into multiple fights about it. A little disagreement gradually has spun out of control, and they are both defending their own desires. Jenny starts saying mean things about Bob. You're controlling You don't ever give me freedom. You don't really care, do you? If you were to see Bob, you would see that he had similar ways of thinking and acting. What's the fundamental problem here with their fighting? I think the answer is that they've given into unbelief. They've lost sight of God and are so narrowly focused on defending their own little kingdoms that God's word doesn't have precedent in their life anymore. Take Jenny as an example. She no longer believes in God's word, but consistently gives into unbelief. 1 Corinthians 13 says, always trust. She doesn't start with a position of trust for her husband's motives, but she gives into the lie and she's always suspicious. She doesn't believe that submitting to his leadership is really what is best in that moment, but thinks their marriage would be better if she ran the show, even if it's just in this financial category. I, we could go on and on to show the contrast of how God's word comes up, and rather than choosing to believe it and to act on it, uh, Jenny or ourselves fall into unbelief. She's trusting the lies in her heart and the false assumptions in her mind more than the word of God. As this couple gives themselves over to unbelief, they will continue to trust more and more their thoughts and their feelings and their agendas more than anything else. Does this happen to you? I think the answer is yes. (laughs) This happens to us all the time. The question is, is this the habit of your lifestyle? You know, 1 John is is the book we go to to kind of be like the test or the exam one can take to see if they truly have salvation in Christ. And in that book, it doesn't say that you will never not sin. It actually says if you say you have no sin, the truth is not in you. Well, what it does say is that your walk or your life has a particular trajectory, yeah? And so the question is, are, is your marriage in a trajectory that is moving towards trust in Christ and very much that's manifesting, and it's mostly tested when, not when you're on church on Sunday, not when the book's open for Wednesday night Bible studies, not when you're praying over your meal, but when your spouse is in sin, how are you responding in that moment, Right? I think about this a lot when I was in the military. They would train you for these emergency situations. And you could do very well in the drill, but that doesn't mean nothing unless you're actually in it. Does that make sense? So I just want you to say, don't put your confidence on how you're acting when the sun is out and the bank is full and there's positive feelings throughout the household. Really what's going to test if you honestly trust Christ over your own feelings and desires or what happens when a problem arises? Right? Now I'm not saying don't train yourself in times of peace, because that's when you should train. You still should train. I'm just saying don't get overly confident that you can pass the drill, but then in every real life situation you fail and you somehow justify. Like, well, I, I'm reading about it, I'm doing it. What's the instinctual response in a situation of sin? That'll tell you what your the habits of your lifestyle are. Now my goal here is not to give you, I'm not gonna give you ten steps to to fix your marriage. <laughs> I'm just trying to help you frame your life in this idea of belief and unbelief. If you can understand that, and you can start using that as a, as a way to examine any and all circumstances in your life, when you see yourself drifting into unbelief, you can correct, right? And then if you're moving towards belief, when you start hearing doubts, is this really the right answer? Are you really going to forbear with her? It's the 10th time. Are you sure this is the right thing? You can become and say, yes, it is the right thing because the Lord has forgiven all my sins. Who am I to say that this one is too much? Think about it this way. If you're married and your spouse is a believer, Christ has paid for all their sin. For you to hold sin or a crime against someone that's already been fully paid for, I don't want to be there. (laughs) But we often are, aren't we? We forget that the person that we are married to, if they are a believer, are just as blood-bought as we are. Their sins are just as cleared as ours. But the temptation is, "Eh, forget that. They owe me. Give me my pound of flesh. So forgiveness. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness. We will define it as such. It is a canceling or paying in full for a debt that someone else has created. The debt is a personal, relational debt, a struggling between two people often caused by sin committed against each other. Forgiveness is the releasing of the offender from the punishment or payment that he or she might actually deserve. Forgiveness is offered freely here's the word that we don't like to hear unconditionally (laughs) i can't tell you how many times i've forgiven if right or i'll forgive you as long right we put conditions don't we praise god jesus is not like that with us as john macarthur says if you could lose your salvation you would it is undeserved and cannot be earned so let's look at matthew 18 We're going to start in uh, 21 through 35. So when you take a look at it, you might recognize this part of Scripture. It's uh, the parable of the unforgiving servant. So let's take a look at this, shall we? Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, "'Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything.'" So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So we have three characters here, right? King or the master, the wicked servant, and the fellow servant. The king master is God. The wicked servant is us. The fellow servant is anyone else who has ever sinned against us, yeah? God's great mercy in forgiving our debt. The wicked servant owes an enormous debt to the master. The amount, which is 10,000 talents, is meant to be an incalculable amount, something akin to maybe like a billion dollars in, in our money. The common practice in ancient times for outrageous debt was to sell the family and everything he owned as punishment for a debt that could not be repaid. The wicked servant pleads for time in order to repay the debt. Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. The master has pity on him and kindly responds by forgiving the debt. And yet, this wicked servant, you and I, don't get how much we've been forgiven. The wicked servant runs into a fellow servant that owes him a 100 denarii. Note the contrast. Billions, thousands. Can you compare it? Yet the wicked servant seizes the man, chokes him, and demands, pay what you owe. And although he had the same plea, just like this wicked servant had to the king, he throw, has him thrown into jail until he can pay the debt. Two clues that this wicked servant does not understand what God has done. What you and, when you and I don't understand what God has done for us in Christ verse 26 i will pay you everything he owes a billion dollars is he going to pay it off could his generations pay it off no he somehow doesn't see the weight of what he actually owes there's a part of him that feels i could pay it off just give me the time is that how we feel sometimes about our salvation in christ we can say all day by grace alone, it's only by Christ, it's only by Christ. But maybe there's a part of you that says, but you know what, it's because I do these things, right? Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe I am saved by Christ, but you know, I keep it. I keep it because I'm, I'm good to my wife and I'm, I'm good to my kids or I'm a good worker. That's, that's my work, I'm doing that. We echo this man's foolishness when we believe things like that. God's mercy was the only way For his debt problem to be paid. Verse 29 he says, have patient with me and I will pay you. Once again, his harsh treatment of the other servant, so he literally, the the other guy said the exact same plea and yet it rolls over him, doesn't it? His heart is somehow so hardened that he literally just escaped the selling of him and his wife and his children. His entire life was destroyed. And yet, just a few hours later, the, for, the, the, the great weight of what he was forgiven is totally lost on him. Mercy begets mercy. Other servants saw this, reported to the master, and the master came back furious. The master asked the wicked servant this question. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And he threw the servant in jail until he could pay his debt. If you have been shown mercy as a Christian, you have no choice. You must show mercy to others. Anything else as a Christian is absolutely unacceptable. There's a story I read a couple years back. We're talking about being in a country in Africa. We know that there's Um, Islamic law, very common for, for zealous people of Islam to go around, look for Christians, and start burning their homes, killing them. In this particular story, a woman's home with her kids, her husband's at work, these zealots come in, they ask if they're Christian, and they begin to start murdering their family with machetes. Kids murdered, the mom left with machete in her head, she was left dead, thought she was dead. Husband comes, looks around, sees that his wife's still breathing, is able to give her medical care. When she comes to in the hospital, her fury is great. I will never forgive these men. Not only have they murdered our children, but I will never be the same. And her husband, by God's grace, pointed her to the cross. Now, I don't know how long it took. I don't think it happened in an hour. But in that time in 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 the hospital she was able to get to the realization that we should in this parable and she realized as wicked as those people were herself she had a debt a billion times greater and yet Christ forgave it in full and she actually came to a peace in her mind over the people that murdered her family interestingly sovereignly one of the men after days thinking of the atrocities he committed felt a great conviction, and he actually eventually found her in the hospital and confronted her, and said, I'm the one who murdered your children and left you for dead. I can't sleep. Would you forgive me? And the answer was yes. It's not always pretty, right? Sin has consequences that can last for the rest of your life on this earth. I don't want to say it's like, say yes, and then sunshines and rainbows come up, and everything is just good old fine. But in situations like this, you, have, you get to find out what is truly the root of, of what, what moves you in this life. How can we, who have been forgiven of every single debt we owe, you could live a thousand lifetimes. I always laugh at that. People are like, oh, reincarnation, I get another chance. I don't think you understand how miserable that is. Because you could live a thousand lifetimes and all that you will ever find is that you can't do anything good. As Paul says, wicked man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? The answer is Christ. Our sins, past, I think we understand that concept, right? It's very easy to say, yeah, the past is forgiven. Once we start talking about my present sins are forgiven, we start to be like, that's kind of crazy. But the craziest thing is, every sin that we will commit in the future has also been forgiven. That blows my mind, and it should blow your mind. This is why the gospel has to be the foundation of everything you do, especially in marriage, because marriage is a great sanctifying tool of the Lord. Do not get it twisted. You may say, maybe I married wrong. Maybe I I didn't do it at the right time. There was so much I could do, and the answer is, as Christians, we should be good stewards. And with God's word, there is ways to get married that are wiser than others. Agreed? (laughs) And there are ways, I guess you could say, to be married in a sinful manner when you shouldn't have. But you think somehow that convolutes God's plan? It's like, man, I had the perfect person for you, but because you went into that Starbucks, I didn't want you to go there. Now you married this sinner. Ah, what can I do? You think that's how that works? It's not how that works. God uses all things for the good of those who love him, especially, especially hard times. God's refining fire needs to more and more be seen by you as a great gift. If you are an ingot of of precious metal, but marred with all these poor or, or unwanted imperfections, to make that valuable, you must refine the bad out. That doesn't happen by petting it or by saying kind words it happens through fire intense heat god is good to us he puts us through trials for our good the bible says if he does not discipline you you are an illegitimate child you are not his he disciplines you what for your holiness that's the most important thing you want you don't it's not the money. It's not the, the happy family. It's not those things. I know it feels like that. I know how it is to be in a circumstance when you do not have something that you are so used to having, and it you feel like, how can I live without it? I know, but God is good to show us those moments, to put us in those situations, and the answer is, stop looking to the things I give you for your pleasure. Amen. I am your treasure. And I love you more than I love you feeling good. And if I have to refine you, and if it has to hurt, and it has to be for the rest of your life, I will. Because one, I'm zealous for my glory. And second, I love you more than just this temporary facade of pleasure. So what is the point of this parable? The story encourages us to marvel at God who forgave us such An enormous debt that we could never repay on our own. This is to inspire praise and worship to God for what he has done for us in our salvation. Also, this enormous debt that God forgave for our sin should be a motivator for us to forgive by comparison when others sin against us. A billion dollars forgiven, every other sin Can't be compared. Your flesh wants you to narrow your view so that you magnify that which is actually not that big. Okay, so there's two ways you can magnify, in my understanding of the word. There is to make something small look bigger than it is. This is usually through like a microscope, right? And then there is to make something look more the size it actually is. This is like a telescope, right? A telescope isn't making you look less what the planet or the star looks like. It's giving you more the reality of what it is. Your flesh wants you to microscope magnify issues, to make things that are not big look big. You have to know that. You have to understand that. Because if you don't, your small, petty problems are gonna be the thing that you think is most dire, and it's not. We are pilgrims. This is not your home. This is not the end of the story. I don't care if you can somehow live 300 years, and it's horrible. It does not compare to an eternity in glory with Christ. One of my favorite verses, Paul says in Romans, the things, the struggles of this world, the the afflictions of this world, remember, this man has much more afflictions than you and I. Whipped 39 times, remember why it's 39? Because 40 was considered lethal, So they did him mercy by doing one less. That's not mercy. They just didn't want to get criminalized for it. Does that make sense? (laughs) They found a way to get as close to as beating him to his death as possible, and they can be hands-free. Was it just one time he got beat? No. Shipwrecked. Friends left. Everything ultimately dies because the people that he he was willing to say, I would go to hell for them, were chasing him. And the very love he was showing to them, they saw it as spite. And they ultimately were the reason that drove him to seek Caesar and be killed. Isn't that crazy? He loved them so much he literally died because of them. And yet he says these are light, momentary afflictions. That is insane. You have to realize how insane that is. Okay, only two people can say that. People who see things like the reality of it or crazy people. The question is, which one was Paul? Was he crazy, or did he see what was real? And he says, in comparison to the glory that was revealed in Jesus Christ. He's not the crazy person. He's the person who sees reality. Oftentimes, we're the crazy person because we say, yes, Jesus saved me. He's paid for all my sins. I'm going to go to heaven for sure to be with my king. And then one little stumbling block comes our way. Oh, no, all his laws. What can I do? We're the crazy person. Get Fix your eyes on Christ. Let nothing, 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 nothing in this life is somehow apart from Christ's work in your life. It's not like the devil's just as strong as God, or maybe even stronger on certain days of the week, maybe Friday the 13th, he's got a little bit more power, and then he just moves things, and God's like, I tried my best, but I have all these people I have to work for, and I missed you. I'm so sorry. Tried your best. No, that's crazy. We are a church that says God is sovereign, that he has all power, but then we don't believe it because in the days of the week, one little minute problem comes up and you immediately start doubting everything that God has said to you. I'm guilty of that. We're guilty of that. The answer isn't to, oh, I just need to meditate. Oh, I just need food. I just need to go for a run. I just need to do something fun. The answer is look to Christ. Remember what he has done for you. kind of shows you how different the kingdom of heaven is compared to what the world thinks. The world says, you want better, do things. Christ says, you want better, stop and look to me. (laughs) The world says, keep moving if you want success. The Bible says, stop worrying about you and look to me. The appreciation of a massive debt forgiven, our sin against a holy and perfect God. Forms the base and starting point for our forgiveness of one another's much smaller by comparison offenses. Without understanding the depth of our sin against God and the riches of his forgiveness towards us, we will never be able to forgive others. Perhaps you're in that situation. Why can't I forgive? Why can't I forgive? I feel like I'm doing all the things. I think what happens is you do all the things superficially, but you've lost the root. It's like you cut a weed's butt off and you expect it to not grow back. You've got to get the root out. Okay? Extending true forgiveness is clear and persuasive evidence that we have been forgiven by God. The bottom line is that a forgiven sinner forgives sin. If a person is unwilling to forgive, it shows, one, that God's mercy has not transformed their heart and life, and two, they will be liable to pay the consequences for their sins. Now I just want to make this very clear. Christians aren't perfect. It's not that there hasn't been a moment in any Christian's life that they were in a situation like that and in that moment in their flesh they listened to the unbelief and they didn't forgive. So I just want to make it sure I'm sure there are times in your life that you could say well wait a second I've done exactly that. I have not forgiven a person. First of all God is faithful and just to forgive us. Repent right? It's, it's interesting to me. A lot of the Christian life is like you have the weapons of your warfare. They're there. You have your word. You have the spirit. You have the body of God. It's there. But some days you somehow forget that, <laughs> right? The sword's in your bookshelf, and things happen, and you, instead of going to the sword, you know, where do I go? Where do I go? Right? You have things that you need to work through instead of going to your brothers in Christ, you don't, right? It really is about forgetting, having unbelief. The Bible says that God always provides a mean of escape. I just want you to make it clear, just because there's always a means of escape doesn't mean it's the easiest path. It doesn't always mean that it's the lighted path that in that moment, sometimes your mind's so fogged up that you can't see it very well. That's why it's so important to do well when you're building the habits of grace in your life because you need it to be instinctual. That's what we need. If you're still a person who when you're sin, you immediately respond with sin, you haven't trained enough, right? And that's okay, (laughs) but you need to keep training and don't be distraught. If you're a person who says, I've been doing all these things and I still sin, this is what I love. Sanctification, I think, ultimately finds its fruit, and that you keep on fighting. It's the successes are not really the point. Do you understand? Are you fighting? Do you keep going to the Lord? Do you keep asking for forgiveness? Do you keep seeking his righteousness? Do you keep trying to mortify the flesh? Keep fighting. That's the indicator. The success is not really the point. Because remember, what successes bring the believer to heaven? Christ's success. His completed work does. Does that make sense? So I know a lot of us can be burdened because we are like, but I have been doing this for years of my life and I don't get anywhere. I must not be Christian. I must be no hope. Are you fighting? Just keep fighting. Some of us will enter heaven crawling and that's okay. And that's absolutely okay. So do not get discouraged because you're not necessarily inherently seeing all the fruit that you would like to see. I think the Christian is in a weird situation in our our internal being. We so much never want to sin. We so much just want to love God with everything. But then there's the grief and reality that I live in a fallen world and I still have this finite body and I can't do what I want. I want to honor him. That's a good fight, my brothers and sisters. Because before you were saved, you didn't care two pennies about that. You drank down water or iniquity like it was water. You even called the things that are wicked as good. And then the good things that you did, the good things, you found a way to claim it, not for God's glory, but for your own. So if you're in a circumstance in which you feel bared down, I just can't seem to get a leg up. My question is, does sin still break you? And do you still go to Christ for help? That is wonderful. That is absolutely wonderful. God does not leave or forsake any of his people, and his ways are perfect. The timing may not be what we think is perfect, but I promise you, his timing is perfect. I'm sure all of us who have lived just a little bit in, in Christ can see that we go after a circumstance has completed. We look back, and all, we were complaining all the while in that situation. It didn't happen when I wanted. It didn't do. But then when you look back, you're like, God, you are so good. I could not see a fraction of what you did in that What that should drive us to do, those experiences of God's faithfulness should drive you to be much more still when the next issue comes up. Not because you know all the details, but rather you know the one who has promised to see you through. So, a mature believer more and more is the person that when the boats start rocking, they don't get scared. Because they're like, that's okay, because my anchor is Christ. It's going to be hard, but Lord, see me. I know you will see me through this. Help me, Lord, to honor you through it. And that's what I want our hearts to be when it comes to marriage as well. So implications for marriage. Forgiveness is costly. It is not easy. Most of the time, it is very difficult to forgive. When you cancel a debt, it simply doesn't disappear. Oftentimes, your life is affected by the foolishness of sin of the other person. But forgiveness means you willingly decide to absorb the punishment that person deserved. That's very costly, especially when you consider the range of things that sinners can do to one another. Sometimes small, oh, I forgot to get the milk from the store, to sometimes bigger, adultery, or physical abuse, and everything in between. Unforgiveness, though, is just as costly. To not forgive someone is just as costly. Not forgiving someone leads to jealousy, anger, and envy, and bitterness. Unforgiveness sows seeds of bitterness that with time will grow and make everything worse. The cost of not forgiving is worse than actually forgiving the person. Not forgiving someone is a dangerous move because it's spiritually and relationally destructive for your heart and soul. What makes us hold off on forgiving? our sense of justice makes us want to punish the person or exact some type of revenge, whether it's giving them the silent treatment or constantly reminding them, even berating them for what they did wrong. We as sinners choose all types of ways to draw out the situation rather than offer forgiveness. So be warned, a lack of forgiveness is a recipe for trouble. Remember from the parable, the wicked servant was thrown into jail until he could pay off the debt. His unwillingness to forgive the other servant was costly to him. But I want to say something more importantly, because if we're not careful, you're hearing what I'm saying, and you're going to say think something like this. Okay, well, you know, I want peace, and I want a good marriage. So yeah, let me do these things so I can have a good marriage. One of the most subtle ways in which we dishonor the Lord with our actions is that we make means of God the end the end goal. I'm not telling you this because the goal of coming out of here is I want you to have a happy marriage. If that's what you've been thinking this whole time going here, you, your understanding has totally been misplaced and you are probably in danger performing one of the biggest forms of subtle sin in your entire life. The point of this is because what drives the Christian is I want to glorify God I want his name to be put on display as he actually is. And God has given me the opportunity that with my thoughts and my words and my deeds, I can do that. I don't know what's gonna happen with my spouse if I forgive and I do the Christ-like things, but my concern is not so limited and not so finite. My desire is that God would be glorified and no one may ever see it in my life. No one may ever know what I'm doing in my household for the rest of my life, but God knows. So if you come in here and the idea is, oh, I just want a better marriage, will this help me be more happy? Then you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. I'm telling you these things because I want you to honor the Lord. God blesses those who honor the Lord. And many times, brothers and sisters, it's not an honoring that you're going to see on this side of heaven. And that's perfectly okay because any treasures on this side disappear. But the treasures in heaven will never disappear. Is the treasure of your heart that I want God to be magnified in my life? Because if it's not that, not only are you not going to be able to have a good marriage, you're not going to be able to do anything good. A lack of forgiveness is a horrible witness. Look at the parable. The other servants saw what was happening, and they were greatly distressed. The wicked servant's lack of forgiveness was a horrible witness to others looking on. If our marriages are meant to be a display of the gospel, if there is to be a shadow of Christ and the bride, then when we don't forgive our spouse, it is a horrible witness for the gospel's transforming power. And I'll end here. Forgiveness means no longer keeping a record. Do you know what exhuming is? Digging up old bones from a grave. A bad habit of some of us is to dig up things that their spouse has done wrong and use it against them in any and all fights. Even if they express forgiveness after the wrongdoing, they still use their previous sin against them. Don't exhume. 1 Corinthians 13 six says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. If you really forgive them, then you will let the past stay in the past. If you really have forgiven them, then you are choosing no longer to hold it against them. Forgetting doesn't mean the memories go away. You can still remember it, oftentimes not at your choice. But that's different than holding it against them. Forgiveness means forbearing over the long haul. The reality of marriage is that you will keep encountering your spouse's sin because they will struggle for sin their entire life. So how do you continue to forgive? Note Peter and Jesus' interaction at the beginning. With Judaism, three times was sufficient to show a forgiving spirit. Peter thinks then it's a big deal if I do seven. Peter... um, Seven in the Bible, the number of completion and perfection. Jesus says, you think that it is a big deal? Well, Christian forgiveness asks much more of you, 70 times 7. Jesus ups the ante. 70 times 7 doesn't mean after 491 times you can stop forgiving. This is meant to represent an infinitely large number, much larger than you could have ever imagined. Humanly speaking, who can do this? No one. No one. That's why it's so appropriate that this comes from Jesus' mouth. To forgive someone this long and this often is not humanly possible. It takes a supernatural act from God. It takes the Holy Spirit dwelling in sinners for this to happen consistently within marriage. If you struggle to forgive, ask God to help you. To do this consistently over the long haul in your marriage requires God's help. You can't do it on your own. So, summary. summary. Christ has saved us from our sins. There is no way that you could be right with the holy God apart from God himself to make means for you to get through. And he didn't just send an angel. He didn't just really send a good man. He sent the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the son of God. And he lived the life that was perfection, for he not only did what was right externally, but he did it with the joy set on the glory of his father. And then he took the wrath of God that you and I deserve, past, present, future sins, all paid for. And now you have been forgiven such an incredible debt. You have been made a new creature. You have been equipped with the Spirit himself. You have the Word of God. You are being sanctified day by day. Then what should be at the center of your marriage is the reality of that. And that manifests itself very weightily when you are sinned against. Do you forgive? In Christ, it's possible. Apart from Christ, it's impossible. Let me go ahead and pray. Father God, we are so thankful that you have reminded us today of your goodness. You remind us today of our sinfulness. Father, I know sometimes we, we err on not wanting to hear how bad we are, but how good is it to hear more of the reality of our sinfulness because it shows more of the reality of your goodness. Please, Lord, help us to fight sin. Help us to be a people that reflect forgiveness that matches the forgiveness that we have been recipients of. Father, I know that there are hard circumstances, I mean not to make anything light, but Father, if we do not have the right perspective, we will magnify the sins of our spouse in such an inordinate way that we will simply spend a life dishonoring the Lord. Let us always remember the biggest sin that we fight is not found in the person outside of us, but rather it's the very sin in our heart to use evil for evil, to turn even good things into malicious things. But Father, these things would be impossible apart from you, but you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. Make us a people of the book. Make us lovers of who you are, Lord. Be with us and and remind us that it is not what we feel that speaks of reality, but what your word declares. You have saved us, you have forgiven us, and you will see us to the end. Lord, please allow our lives to be an offering to you. Allow our lives to be a witness to your goodness and your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.